welcome to the 12th episode of Collectability Podcast. After a complete revolution around the sun, we finally welcome a woman to these conversations. The first, but certainly not the last. Her career is a clear reflection of where her passion lies. She has a degree in history of art and a bachelor's degree in the restoration of scientific, technical and horological objects. She has mastered the demanding Swiss Wostep watchmaking school and is also a GIA graduate gemologist. Having worked at the Musée d'Horlogerie du Lop and then at the Patek Philippe Museum, she took on the role of scientific assistant at the Musée d'Art et d'Histoire, the watchmaking, animaling, and jewelry museum of Geneva under the precious guidance of its chief curator, Estelle Fallet. She then went on and joined the Sotheby's watch department in London, later moving to the auctioneer's Geneva office, after which she ended up at Gruebel Forsey. I am talking about Nathalie Marelloni, who, for the last four years, has been working at what most would consider a horological Disneyland. She is the present deputy director of the MIA, the world-famous Musée International d'Horlogerie, founded in 1902 in La Chaux-de-Fonds, Switzerland, succeeded the legendary Jean-Michel Pellier, who had shared the direction of the museum with Ludwig Oxlin and Nicole Brossard for 14 years. Dear Natalie, welcome to Collectability Podcast, the podcast about all things Patek Philippe. It is a true honor to have you in this episode. Thank you so much, Carlos. It's a very... Great introduction. I'm very humbled. <laughs> I know your resume, which I've just described, is a little bit longer, but we have to keep it simple. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I'm sorry. It's a bit long. It's many years of work, as you know, and professional career to get there. So I'm pretty chuffed. Having said that by someone else, it's pretty nice. So thank you for mentioning. First, Musée d'Horlogerie du Lot, and then Patek Philippe Museum. Afterwards, Musée d'Art et d'Histoire, and finally where we are today, the Musée International de l'Horlogerie. A lot of museums. I did work private as well. I did work for Sotheby's, which was also one of the greatest professional experience of my life. So I'm very grateful as well to have worked for other companies than museums. But tell me, has anyone ever doubted your passion for horology and watchmaking? No, I don't think so. Uh, I tried to escape uh, horology and watchmaking when I was a student, when I started my history of art degree. But I'm from a family of horologists, family of watchmakers, and my parents, my grandparents, were they're all involved in this uh, trade. So I tried to escape, but I couldn't. So I'm here and I'm passionate. And it was very clear from the start that I really wanted to to work in that field. I know that curse when you want to escape, but it's not possible. <laughs> no, <laughs> it is not. But it's not a curse. It's a great field to work. And as you mentioned, especially as a woman, I feel very honored and humble to be trusted for such a great collection that is the one of the MIH. And as you said, it's a very male-driven world. But I am glad to be respected in that field as a not not because I'm a woman, but because of the general knowledge, perhaps. And I welcome that the change that slowly comes into our world, and women are accepted for their professional proficiency. Yes, yes. <laughs> but we need more. 
I think that the greatest achievement when was awarded to me when I was working at Sotheby's actually because I had been made Freeman of the Clockmaker Company in London. And also I was the first Swiss woman being awarded a, a Freeman of the Clockmaker Company. It was just right after I did the cataloging and work I've done for the uh, George Daniels collection. And they just put me forward because they recognized my work and knowledge. And I was really humbled. I do remember that catalog. Thank you. It was a uh, huge work. This is almost the same question I did to Christian last in my last interview. The Patek Philippe Museum. How did you enter this institution? What job did you have there? I harassed them. <laughs> I was, I think I was the first intern to be hired in the Patek Museum. I don't know if they had another intern since, but um, as you said, I did my, um, my degree thesis as a conservation restoration of technical, horological and scientific objects. It was the end of my studies there. And I really wanted to target the best museum that I could focus in. I could enter it. So I wrote letters and letters saying to them, please let me do this in your museum. And first they said, no, they said, we don't take interns. We're sorry. But I didn't take no for an answer. I told them I have this great uh, subject that could really be beneficial for the museum. And they studied the resume of my thesis and they said, okay, you can come and can work for us. And it was brilliant because when it started really my career as a horologist, because then they hired me and it was because of the Patek Museum Trust that I really was able to then grow in the field, in the industry. I owe Patek Philippe and especially the Patek Philippe Museum and, and Philippe Stern massively because if they, they kept on saying, we don't take an intern, we will never take interns, I wouldn't maybe not be here today talking to you. At Patek, you did a, a study about what I remember you told me, the deterioration of materials. Yes. Deterioration of material, if incident was impacted the collection, like a flood, or I did what we call uh, in French a plan d'urgence, an uh -huh. emergency plan. So if the museum is touched by uh, a fire or a disaster or, or a flood or water being poured all over the object because there would be a fire, for example. It was distincting and describing plan of how to treat all of their objects by category, like organic objects, inorganic objects, different by type of materials, what kind of emergency treatment in conservation restoration you can have for this uh, collection. It's interesting. I imagine they kept that plan uh, as maybe a first list of what their collections and, and watches are made of in terms of diversity of materials. Yes, I think they were really grateful as well to have this side of the knowledge of the collection. So, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that nothing will ever happen in the Patek Philippe Museum. But if it does, they have a, a procedure to follow and how to treat in the most beneficial way all the objects by materials. We study in, in conservation with restoration of uh, technical, horological and scientific instrument. They were not very much into, you know, the proper restoration work as uh, Christian did, like Christian Lass, yep. because he, he has a, a restorer training. I am more on um, physical and chemical composition of the objects. So how to treat them if something would happen to them due to their chemical composition not by restoring them per se, like remaking a wheel or 
remaking any components that I wouldn't do, but I could treat. There's many ways you can treat a museum collection. Mm -hmm. I do have a book in my shelf, which is study into the medieval metallurgy of old clocks. Fascinating. Of course, it's technical, but it's it's yeah. a fascinating subject. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Beyond the, the science between uh, what was used. Yeah, we still use FTIR technology. So basically, if we want to go very deep into the research and date very precisely a material or a metal, it's a bit invasive because we would need to take a sample of the metal and then put that in the FTIR, FTIR machine. But then it can quite closely describe us the composition of the material and then date very precisely. And then the auction work, Natalie. You went to Sotheby's Watch Department, which was uh, actually a big change because it's yeah. a different world, even though the subject is the same, watches, horology in a certain way, uh, but it's completely different. First in London and then Geneva. How was uh, your experience there? Oh, it was one of the most wonderful experiences of my life. I would recommend the auction world to anyone who is very driven and very passionate and needs and wants to work hard because it's a it's a hard working world to be a specialist at auction but you learn so much and you have such a diversity of objects that you can learn from when i entered the auction world i wasn't very educated on, on the vintage market for example and i had to really study that and get even more passionate about you know pp reference uh, rolex reference vintage all the vintage watches. I was a lot more trained into the clocks and pocket watches and enamel and so, so on. I would say my knowledge would be until the end of the 19th century, but anything 20th century, I lacked of knowledge. And with the auction world, I was able to really broaden the field. And I'm very, very grateful for that as well, because it's really passioning. As you know, John Redden uh, was my boss at the time, but uh, we were 13 specialists when I was working there. So meaning that all the 13 of us would move across the globe to help the others. And this feeling of uh, really belonging to a small family of passionate people was something that I would never forget. And these people are still very close friends to me. And I'm really, really attached to this period of my life. It was one of the best times to be honest. All the people that we were working together at that time, we still have very close bonds and tremendous respect for each other. And, and still, if we need anything, we know how to reach ways to reach out to the ex-colleagues. We are very, very um, prone to help each other. I think everybody knows that old auction catalogs are almost like horological books. It's something we lost a little in some years ago, but coming back again, good description in an auction catalog is essential. The community out there that loves watches, even if they can't buy or, yeah. or bid an auction, it's essential for this common passion. We have. I agree. Even when I do research for pieces that we have at the museum, I go often to see what are the description in the auction catalogs. I have one right on my desk, which is, this is a Bible, for example, from the Time Museum. And I'm, I'm studying this uh, recently because it's as good as some detailed research that you can find in great published books. So here at the museum, we have a, one of the biggest library dedicated to time and to horology. 
and of course we are we are collecting auctions catalog as well because they are invaluable for the knowledge following Sotheby's, uh, natalie things got a little complicated at global for i mean it's global for say i hope everyone got the joke <laughs> <laughs> you stayed there for a year it was interesting uh, to be on the on the other side i mean i as you said uh, earlier i did museum i did auction and then i did a bit of of sales of retails and and following on technical project that they were doing and i was uh, because you know steven forsey was always traveling so i was kind of assisting him in order to let him know about what were the evolution of the calibers they were developing at that time it, it was interesting of course i think i am perhaps less corporate than I thought I was. As you know, auction world and, and museum world is a very free environment. Like you can do your research. As long as you do your job very well, you're let at peace and people just let you be. And I, I don't know if, if it's because I had great bosses like John or, or other people that were above me, but as long as you, you did your job, it was fine to work in a certain ways that you would choose to work. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe in the industry, per se, it is more control and I maybe didn't really fit in the mold. <laughs> it gave you an additional experience. I mean, coming through the, the business itself is an added on experience that completes you. Yes, absolutely. Tremendous experience. Uh, also very grateful. You have to be grateful of the good time, but you have also to be grateful of the less good times. And I'm not saying that uh, because it was a less good time. It was maybe a more complicated time. Complication, as you said. <laughs> but um, I'm very grateful of the knowledge that I got from them as well, because it's a world that I didn't really understand. Everything that was with retailers, uh, you know, negotiating margins, all and so on, uh, something that we don't really have at auction. Mm-hmm. And also knowing the production, uh, how to mass produce a watch, how is working a CNC machine, how you do these kinds of finishings and new discovery as well. Working with Stephen was a blast. Yeah, yeah. working with Stephen was really fun and, and really great. He's a tremendous person as well. And I'm very grateful that I got to learn from him because he's the best at what he does. After you left Kreuble Forcé, you spent a couple of years advising collectors and performing expert appraisals. Yes. Drawing up technical descriptions and condition reports of pieces that were put up for auctions. This was like being on the other side of the fence also. Uh, how was this? This was amazing and I really loved it. And um, I was tremendously lucky because I've, um, you know, in the auction world, you get to befriend some very good clients. You know, we talked about it, but if you're good at your job, you get to have a training as a KCM, uh, which means you're a key client manager. At, at mm. least at Sotheby's, that was how they called it. And I was lucky enough to have a client that I was taking care of um, developed through as well other department of the auction house and that I developed very friendly relationship with. And out of the maybe 10 clients I was managing at the time, perhaps five, four uh, really followed me and asked me to advise on their collection and uh, do description research and and so on. And I got to travel to do, you know, purchase some objects for them. It was really, really great to to have this uh it could be scary to be independent but in my case 
I was really enjoying it because people, they were so passionate and so nice. I would have carried on if I didn't get the job at the museum at the MIH because I really liked it. So these yes. collectors kept you busy? Yes, yes. Uh, they are still good friends. I really look uh, up to them for many things. So very grateful and honored that they would choose me to care about their collection, which to some of them are is just exceptional. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in this field, you keep friends for life almost. Yes. You know, I was also advising on, on jewelry for mm -hmm. private collectors because I am... Um, I'm also a graduate gemologist and I also at Sotheby's, we got to work with the jewelry department a lot. So I did watches as well as jewelry for the, these clients. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I could also benefit it for the knowledge in jewelry. When you go to Geneva, to the, to the auctions in the end of the year, it's always a side-by-side -side exhibition. Always watches and jewelry. You have also watches and wine. <laughs> indeed, indeed. <laughs> watches and cars. All the, all the link department with watches are the best to work with. Absolutely. The it's... best colleagues. <laughs> the best department, the best colleagues. And, you know, when you do parties across departments, uh, you know, diners mm -hmm. with clients, it's all, always watches, jewelry and wine. Perfect. <laughs> But tell me, uh, the gemology graduate course, uh, why did you decide to, to take on that course? Did you feel the need for it? Um, it was complimentary. I always was um, very interested in gemstones. And uh, my, my grandfather had a collection of uh, minerals and gemstones. And, you know, he was a director for the Sites Company, the mm -hmm. first manufacturer of um, synthetic sapphire and, and rubies. So I was always interested and I, and I always thought that I would do it if I could. And at the time, uh, I was working for the Enamel and Jewelry Museum of Geneva. And I got the opportunity to apply to the GG program, to the graduate gemologist in London, because my boyfriend at the time uh, had a job opportunity. Uh, so we didn't really want to carry it on long distance relationships. Mm -hmm. So he said, why don't you try to take that course? And I was like, I'm sure they won't take me. I'm a nobody. I mean, they take 10 people a year. Forget about it. Yeah, but try. So I did try and I didn't say anything to my, my boss, Estelle Fallet, at the mm -hmm. time. And I don't know to what extent, but they, they took me in and they said, oh, you can come and do the course. So I had to tell my boss at the time that I was taken in. And how she reacted to that was so great. She was so, so thrilled for me. And she was like, okay, let's go. Then you come in, you do this one year and then you come back and you take on the jewelry collection of the museum. That's great. And she was really, really positive about it. So I went to London. I did the course and I kind of liked London very much and wanted to stay. <laughs> so I harassed Sotheby's to get a job. <laughs> And then how I mentioned you in my introduction, um, you entered what I called an horological Disneyland, the MIH, the Museum International de Horlogerie in La Chaux des Fonds. Mm -hmm. Incredible place. Yes. Is it uh, an horological Disneyland, Natalie? It is, 100%. It's like every day is like being a child in a candy store for me. It's like, you know... I go down in the museum because it's an, it's an underground museum for, for those who haven't visited. It's all built underground. It's the first uh, troglodyte museums. So it's really an Alibaba cave. 
And uh, each time I go, I'm mesmerized. And I go before we have visitors and I often talk to the clocks. Uh, <laughs> they're so pretty and, and they're they are really like, it's like they're alive for me. They do talk back. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, every day it's like um, a new, almost a new discovery. It's been more than four years now that I am here and, and every day I'm, I'm looking at some pieces and I discover new details or a new, a new facets of the objects, uh, a, a new, a new object. Sometimes when I go to the reserves, obviously we don't have everything exposed. We have a different reserve space and, uh, yeah, so each time is a, is a real treat. Um, I'm very, very lucky. What would you say is the importance of the MIH today? In our world. The importance of the MIH is uh, it huge. It's the biggest horological museum. It's mm. the most complete collection dedicated to time measurement. So from clepsydras, sunglasses to atomic clocks. And we also have a restoration workshop that is built inside the museum. So you can see my colleagues who are master watchmaker works through the glass. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have also the biggest library dedicated to watchmaking and horology. So I would say the importance of the MIH is the, with the Patek Philippe Museum is, is the biggest collection in horological collection. Mm -hmm. So it's huge. At MIH, you succeeded the legendary Jean-Michel Pigui, mm -hmm. who had been with the museum for the last 40 years. Yeah. yeah. Was it difficult to step into his shoes? Yes, of course. Of course. First, you're a woman, you are a... Young, I mean, when he started himself, he was the same age as me. But, you know, he spent 39 years of his life in the museum, running that museum. So, I mean, you get to be very, very humble and you feel very small uh, in, in a lot of ways. The way he, he talks and the way he makes you uh, comfortable, I mean... Sometimes I, I have the opportunity to call him and say, hey, Jean-Michel, do you remember this and this and this event? Uh, can you tell me more? Because I don't find any archives of it. And he would re reply to me. So he's like a um, living institution mm -hmm. and he's very happy and he's a very approachable, great person, uh, very kind. His kindness is beyond words. And so I'm, I'm very, very proud that I, I can reach out to him when I need, when we need, because it's not only me, that also colleagues who are watchmakers. Like a living resource. Yeah, yeah, it's, he's a living archive. You know, when you step in the shoes of somebody like that, when you inherit his office, inherit his files, inherit his contacts, to me, it was a massive, it is still a massive uh, responsibility. And I feel very dedicated to not let that legacy down mm. very keen on, on keeping the high standards. And the institution, the MIH, has also an incredibly important award that is handed out every September. It's yes. called the Gaia Prize. Mm -hmm. I think many of our listeners know it. And in 2022, the winners will be announced on the 22nd of September. Can you tell us about these prizes? Yes, and first of all, I would like to Ask anybody who's listening to this wonderful podcast that if you have anyone to put forward for the Gaia Prize, uh, you are very welcome to send a dossier at the mih at ne.ch. Mm -hmm. We can discuss that later. But basically, the mih started in 1993, and we can compare it to the Nobel Prize 
of virology is not like uh, like the GPHG. It doesn't award a, a creation, a piece. It awards a person. And there are three categories, now four, because I, I tell you about the fourth one. But there is Artisana Creation, mm -hmm. which are for all the independent watchmaker or enamel or, or all the artists, craftsmen, fall into that categories. Esprit d'entreprise, so mm -hmm. it's uh, entrepreneurship spirit. And histoire et recherche, so research and history. So people are rewarded their entire career for the in these three categories. And um, we had um, famous horologists like Georges Daniels, Jean-Claude Duiver, Urverk, you name it. We are rewarding a career, not just one person or one product. It's an achievement award. It's very respected and it's uh, very important. There is no money at stakes. It's only the fame that to receive the guy a prize. Unlike the Nobel Prize, you don't get any sponsorship, but uh, you've got uh, recognition for eternity. <laughs> It puts a big smile on your face. <laughs> yes. and, and there's a fourth prize also that I would like to mention because it's very important. Since I entered the MIH, we are doing the Horizon Gaia, Horizon Gaia Prize. Mm -hmm which is a grant that is allocated to any students, researcher, or watchmakers that has a particular project that could beneficiate um, the community, the horological community. But it's for people that are starting their career. It's a grant that has sponsorship of the Watch Academy. So it's quite a fairly good amount of money to work on a project for six months to a year, depending on the project. And it's very important for the new generation to know. It's international as well, so anybody can apply. It's oh, like the Journe, you know, the Journe is sponsoring uh, apprenticeships, so a new watchmaker. It's like this, it's the same, but the categories are the same in than the Gaia Prize. Yeah. Either for research, historian, or watchmakers, or... If you have any marketing, also marketing ideas and entrepreneurship ideas regarding horology, that would be falling into that uh, grant. Mm -hmm. How difficult is it to choose the winners every year? It's quite difficult. We are a jury of um, 15 people mm -hmm. and uh, that cross many categories. We have uh, entrepreneurs, we have auctioneers, we have... Uh, historian we have people that are in the testing also uh, part of the watchmaking world there is there's a lot of debates sometimes could be, get heated and conflictual <laughs> but every year we do the job first it takes us quite a long time to read all the dossier mm -hmm. to see if they are redundant to see if we had them last year to you know yes. to choose them to choose the dossier we're going to put forward and then with the dossier in each category, which is five each years, we, we argue a lot around that table, all the juries. My voice and my, my colleague's voice is a consultative. It's kind of the same for the jury of the GPHG or any literary jury. Any jury would have to argue there. It's a really great thing to do. And each time it, it's fantastic. And you can tell every year, like even the biggest players in the industry, you can tell that the Gaia Price is very, very important for them. And they're very touched. I've seen people in tears in this stage mm -hmm. because really the Gaia Price is for everyone, is for a lifetime achievement. So when you see 
a big CEO crying and saying thank you. It's it's quite something. Of course, we cannot compare both institutions, the Philippe Museum and the MIH. But I have to say that the MIH has a much broader scope than the Pate Philippe Museum. The exhibitions include, of course, incredible pieces at the Pate Philippe Museum, watchmaking with historical importance. But time is actually the main subject when you walk the halls of the MIH Museum. Your last exhibition was dedicated to the quadrillions of a second. It was entitled To the Nearest Femtoseconds. I think it just ended that uh, exhibition. It's still going on. Uh, we basically find a, a more permanent space because it, for us it was very important to keep it not as such a temporary space, but in a more permanent space. So now it's still open. Of course, there are many similarities with the Patek Philippe Museum in terms of ancient collection. I mean, the MIH perhaps has more clocks and perhaps more scientific, technical, astronomical complications mm -hmm. that we inherited from the Ludwig Oechslin time, yeah. which are tremendously interesting. And uh, yes, maybe the MIH compared to the Patek Philippe is more dedicated to time measurement in general. Mm -hmm. uh, not just the, just is a wrong word, but uh, only the mechanical components of yes, terms of time. Watch. Yeah. We're doing an exhibition this uh, 1st of May about enameling. I'm directing this exhibition and I'm also taking on board the help of Anita Porchet, mm -hmm. uh, the famous enameler, who is also curating it with me. And it's going to be huge. It's going to be amazing because we are treating all the type of enamel techniques. Uh, we have learned from very, very famous institutions uh, like uh, Fondation Sando, Patek Philippe Museum, VNA, that are trusting us with their pieces. Of course, we, we are exhibiting our own as well, but it's going to be a huge thing because we also are talking about transmission of these crafts. If flash or deform is not a good excuse to travel to Switzerland, this exhibition is for sure. <laughs> It is for sure. And it's going to last until the 6th of November. So you have time to come. Yeah. Uh, it's quite a long time, but uh, it's really worth it. And I'm very, very, very proud of what we can put in place for this exhibition. Another incredible important asset of the museum is its vast library and unique archives. Is it the place where you love to get yourself lost in? Yes, at first, when I started my, my job here, I really liked to get myself lost in the archives. It's a library. But now we've got documentalists and we have archivists mm -hmm. who are working. And so when I need a publication or a book or anything or any type of archives, I, I'm asking them because the, it's, a, it's in another building. It's very close to the museum, to the AMIH. But still, to go quicker and to do my research and do my writing and, and to go quick, I ask the archivist and the documentalist to, to give me a hand. It's an amazing place. And of course, uh, you can book an appointment if you're a researcher. You can book with us an appointment to have access. Watchmaking is now UNESCO World Heritage. Don't you think that this collection should be put more available to a larger public by having it digitalized and yes. put online? Yes. Absolutely. And that's what we're working on right now with my colleagues. Actually, the person who, who got the grant of the Horizon Gaia last mm -hmm. year, she's working on doing a, a massive inventory of uh, archives and for 
the library for them to be published online. And because we've realized that it's really a need since, you know, COVID happened, people are less prone to travel. Mm -hmm. uh, we are lacking in that field, obviously, but it costs a lot of money to scan all the archives, all the books that we have. So we are working on it. And for sure that we want to have a proper website because I don't know whether you noticed, but the museum website is still linked to the city. Yep. So, the website of the City of La Yes. So we are working on that as well to get a proper website so we can put the collection online and the library as well online. Mm -hmm. That's very important to us. But for political reason mainly and, and security reason, we have just now, like weeks ago, we are able to process it. So right. it, it takes a long time to, to put that in place. But in the years to come, I'm very confident that we will have something great to show the public, horological public and other people. Natalie, I'm going to make you a tricky question. Oh. Is, there, is there a favorite piece you have among the museum's collection? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, at the moment, it's difficult to say I'm, I'm not supposed to have a favorite piece because obviously, you know, if it's a 10 million piece or a a two francs piece, I would treat them in an equal way because we have decided that they are part of the cultural heritage and they're untouchable. But right now, I would say, because I thought about this, I thought that you would ask me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, recently, we have discovered um, a piece that we acquired for the museum from a private collector, from a private family, descendant of the original owner mm -hmm. of an um, enamel piece Grand Sonnerie, Perpetual Calendar, and uh, with two enamel miniatures mm. on both sides. Signed, wait for it, Poluzzi Rohr. The signature of Poluzzi Rohr next to each other on the painting. I've never seen that before. And by doing the research, interviewing Susan Rohr, interviewing uh, Anita Porchet, you know, Suzanne Rohr was a disciple, a protégé of Carlo Poluzzi. She worked with him for 28 years. And it's this exact piece that Paluzzi said, okay, now I agree to sign alongside you on that piece because now you're a master, a master of enamel like me. So I recognize that my knowledge has been transmitted to you and they both co-sign the piece. And... On many levels, uh, this piece is right now my favorite object. I have, I've got many favorite objects, of course, in the collection. But right now, I would say that piece because obviously having the link with the original family, being yeah. able to purchase it, not being ever seen at auction. And that's the key because obviously if it was gone for auction, I'm pretty sure the museum would never been able to acquire it. Being trusted with the family, discovering such a piece, uh, having Susan Rohr telling me that it, she, it's the most important piece for her in her career. Mm -hmm. Like having Blegi co-signing with one of his elev. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So this is huge. I, I, of course, you have the, um, you know, in, in the 17th century, you have the Uo family mm -hmm. co-sign uh, pieces of enamel. It's quite common inside the family workshop that you can find co-signature on enamels, but two enamelists that one is clearly stated like, okay, 
by co-signing with you on that piece. You are now a master. It is, it is huge. It is, it is amazing. And I'm very proud that we were able to acquire that piece. I suppose it will be exhibited. Yes, yes, yes. A righteous place in the exhibition. A really, really good place. And for our last question, my last question, uh, Natalie, you are incredibly passionate about watches and watchmaking, even in your private life. So much so that you married to one of the most gifted watchmakers <laughs> and restorers that we can find today, Raoul Paget. What do you talk about every day at dinner? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yes, Raoul. I didn't take his name, you know, because I don't want people to know as the wife of Raoul Pages. Uh, uh, but yes, we are married. We have a daughter. And uh, our discussion at lunch and dinner, mainly about watches, <laughs> actually. <laughs> We're both passionate. We, we are both uh, both very into it. I mean, we... Um, we don't mind talking about it. It's a real passion. So it's a positive subject for us. We never argue about anything. I mean, on, on the subject, it, for me, it's also a tremendous help to have such a, you know, one of the most technically um, brained person in the world uh, having living with them. So anything I want to pick his mind with, I, I can go and tell me, explain me about this. Why is why is this escapement so so special? What is this? How does this work? And he, I mean, it's it's a huge asset for me, and um and I think in a historical field, I'm also quite helpful to him sometimes. And only imagine the future of your daughter. <laughs> Our daughter, she's uh, she's very um, she's funny because she's very uh, into watches, and she's only 16 months, but. Uh, if she sees you wearing a watch, is the first thing that she grabs. <laughs> I hope she's gonna do when do something that she, as long as she's passionate, you know, about <laughs> what she wants to do. Uh, I don't think we care if you're gonna be a watchmaker or anything related to watches. But if she does, it's it's good for her. <laughs> the future will take care of itself. Yes, <laughs> of course. Dear Natalie, it has been an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. No, Thank it was you mine. so much for your time. Don't mention it. <laughs> it was mine to be, to be honest. The honor is all mine, and and I am since collectability started that I am a, a huge fan. And I mean the knowledge that you put uh, forward with uh, in-depth articles like the last Gondolo articles that I really enjoy reading, all the all the podcasts and the interview, and I, I hope you carry on doing those because it's a great way to learn as well. So thank you for doing what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Collectability is our Disneyland. <laughs> yes, yes. And to anyone who's uh, who's listening to us, they're most welcome to come and visit the MIH. And if they want to say hi to me, they can ask for me, and I will say hi to them, and especially you. Thank you, Natalie. Pleasure. And that's it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And also remember following us on any podcast player you enjoy using in order not to miss our future recordings. This is Carlos Torres for Collectability. <laughs> <laughs>